Uh, welcome, everyone. Um, this is an area of particular interest. And Andrew, welcome back to the ANU. Uh, this is the third book I have done with you in the last two years. Uh, which I note that uh, three books uh, by one of our professors, which you used to be, uh, is almost a higher rate of productivity than you were when you were a professor. Do I need to get more of my professors out and uh, working in parliament? <laughs> uh, I think more, more professors in parliament would be a good thing, although you always think of the William Buckley line, that he'd rather be ruled by the first 2,000 names in the phone book than by the entire faculty of Harvard University. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, and that would also apply to ANU, I'm afraid. Uh, so, okay, uh, this book, Innovation and Quality, How to Create a Future that is More Star Trek Than Terminator, uh, is a, uh, an excellent read. It's uh, both interesting, uh, it's thought-provoking, and it's ultimately very entertaining, uh, for, especially for those people who have a bit of an economics bent at what I would call the economist level. Uh, of which, as an astronomer married to an economist, I almost uh, probably qualify for. So uh, I really do encourage people to take a chance to, to, to read through it, because it's, uh, it's full of stuff that's worthwhile thinking about. But I want to start first on what I would describe as the Star Trek scenario. Uh, tech is good. Tech is great. So tell me, what has technology done for us lately? The uh, advances in CRISPR is going to be extraordinarily exciting for gene editing. It may mean that we're able to get rid of a whole host of diseases. Uh, artificial intelligence is, uh, is not only creating computers that can now beat us in chess and go and uh, Texas Hold'em poker, uh, but also is able, are able to uh, tackle medical problems. Uh, the ability of computers to read scans and pick up early indications of problems uh, ought to save, li save lives. So there's a whole spate of areas in which we are Star Trek-style tech optimists, uh, but we're aware that you need good policies in place in order to make those technologies work for the broader community. So I'm gonna, I want to just look at the audience here, and we're going to take a uh, vote. And I note that uh, the audience is perhaps a little older than the average student at my university. Uh, but younger than my average professor, I think. But uh, so let's cast our name back to 1993. I'm trying always to get professors to retire. Uh, the I want to go back to 1993, which is a, a date in this book, which we'll come back to in a second. And I want you to think about your life now in 2019 and compare it to 1993. Is there anyone in the audience where they don't remember 1993? Couple of you. Okay, you don't have to vote. <laughs> Uh, and I want you to think, is my life better now due to technology, or is it worse? And so I want you to say, if, it, if you think your life is better due to technology since that date, raise your hand. Who thinks their life is worse? Okay. So uh, we, we won't ask you why, but I, I think most people, re you know, since 1993, think life is better. I chose 1993 because that's the date where uh, if you kind of look at, uh, uh, at there's, there's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's the day that the internet was born uh, in, in the form, of, or the year that the internet was born in the form of the World Wide Web. Uh, it was sort of the beginning of a tech boom. Uh, but if we go through from an economics point of view, if you go back even to 1973, 
productivity uh, and, and, and quality of life as measured by an economist seems to have risen, at least in the United States, up to 1973, but then it's kind of faltered and gone backwards. And yet everyone here thinks uh, tech has made life better. What is going on with the way the economists look at the world when, when I read your book, you basically say, eh, it's actually been all downhill since 1973? Uh, this comes back to the old Bob Silo line that you can see the computer revolution everywhere except in the productivity statistics. Uh, part of it is surely that we're not capturing in productivity statistics everything we really care about. So the benefits of having Google Maps and Google, uh, Google Search uh, aren't easily captured in our aggregate data. Uh, but it may also be that uh, we're not getting those gains uh, across workplaces just yet. Uh, it's striking that when uh, electricity comes into factories, uh, the first thing they do is to hook up the steam machines to electricity uh, and they don't get very big productivity gains out of that. And then they realise electricity means you can actually put the machines much closer together uh, and then they start getting much more significant gains, but that takes decades. So there's a, a, a raft of occupations. I think of my former occupation of law, which are in some sense still operating on an artisan model. Uh, areas of academia like yours, Brian, I think have been very quick to uh, adopt technology. Without Moore's Law, you probably wouldn't have a Nobel Prize. Uh, but uh, uh, there's, there's other parts of, of uh, academia that look very similar uh, to what they, what they did 50 years ago that haven't made use of technology in order to transform their, their production process. All right, so just for the uninitiated, uh, my wife always reminds me that productivity is what you, essentially what comes out versus what you put in. That is sort of what you try to measure. Uh, I do note that Tom Lehrer said that uh, life, and I would say therefore productivity, is like a sewer. What you get out is based on what you put in. Uh, and so how exactly do we try to scale things like this in 2019, and in 1993, there just wasn't, I mean, there were computers, but they just didn't even exist, GPS didn't exist. I mean, is this notion that productivity hasn't grown, is that, is that real? Because, I mean, I think that's important to understand about whether or not technology is good or bad. I think this audience thinks clearly something's wrong because their life has been enhanced by technology. Uh, yet you would say, well, what we're getting out compared to what we put in by productivity, eh, it hasn't really changed much uh, at all. So what, what, what is your sense that as economists that's going in there? I think we've gotten considerable gains out of technology, but it's, it, there seem to be a lot of other areas where we've dropped the ball. Uh, so, for example, you look at uh, our education system. Uh, Australians have significantly increased the number of years of education that the average person has. Uh, the quantity of education has gone up. But at the same time, the quality seems to have gone down. On the OECD's PISA tests, the average uh, year nine student now scores where the average year eight student scored at the turn of the century. Uh, so, and part of that is, is surely due to the fact uh, that the 
academic standards of new teachers uh, have fallen. We haven't do, done as good a job in attracting and retaining people who themselves did well at school into education. And so that's narrowed those who, who benefit from, uh, from education. And one of the uh, big, product, uh, big recommendations that Joshua and I make uh, is targeting the quality of education through a central focus on teacher quality uh, as a way of not only boosting innovation but also boosting egalitarianism. So one of the things your book points out is that uh, there was the so-called Roman holiday that Americans took uh, during the 50s and 60s where they could go to Europe and their incomes were so much higher than the average Europeans. It was basically done cheap. Almost like the first time I visited Australia, believe it or not, in 1985 where things were so cheap here because the dollar had just been deflated that it seemed like everything was kind of free. Uh, now. In the U.S., uh, incomes have gone backwards, so the bottom half of the U.S. is actually worse than the average, the bottom half of France. Uh, so, are things being, how are things being shared uh, across uh, this spectrum? And we'll use the U.S. And then I want to contrast to the rest of the world, Australia. But let's think of Europe and and then the developing world. I mean, the short answer to your question, how are things being shared, is they're not really. Uh, you take the American in Paris example that you talked about, Brian. Uh, in the 1950s, the bottom half of Americans were twice as well off as the bottom half of the French population. Now they're a fifth worse off. Uh, so an American in Paris, uh, a middle, middle American going to Paris, uh, lived, uh, lived, uh, lived high in the 1950s, but would struggle to get by today. Uh, if you look at another statistic, the share of American wealth held by the bottom 90% and the top 0.1%. Back in the 1980s, the bottom 90% had four times as much wealth as the top 0.1%. Now the top 0.1% has more wealth than the bottom 90%. It's a huge turnaround. Uh, just one more CEO pay. Uh, it used to be in the 1960s, the typical American worker would need to work 20 years to earn what a big company CEO took home in a single year. Now they'd need to work 312 years. Uh, so for the typical worker to get the boss's pay packet, it used to be they'd need a couple of decades and now they'd need several lifetimes. All right, so now let's uh, think about what Australia is looking like. So uh, you mentioned that you know, the average, the actual uh, average income of Americans has, for the, for the bottom half, has actually gone backwards uh, over the last several decades. Uh, but Australia, you know, we've had 28 years of uninterrupted growth. What does that look like in Australia now? And what do you think the prognosis? Do we need to be worried about slipping into some sort of state that the US is in? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the noted policymaker Peter Garrett uh, got it right when he said, uh, the rich get richer, the poor get the picture. Uh, it, that's essentially what's gone on in Australia. It's not that the poor have gone backwards, it's that they've stagnated at a time when the top has accelerated. Uh, you look at the Bureau of Stats figures on wealth for the bottom fifth and the top fifth of Australians since 2003. Uh, since that time, the bottom fifth, the wealth of the bottom fifth has stayed constant, an average of $35,000 per household. The wealth of the top fifth has gone from 1.9 million to 3.2 million. So the top fifth have added another more than a million dollars uh, to their household wealth while the bottom fifth have stagnated. Uh, that 
can't go on forever. It's not efficient and uh, obviously it's exa exacerbating inequality. One of the risks that I'm concerned about is it impedes social mobility. So if you love living in a society in which the circumstances of your birth don't determine where you end up, then you need a country where the gap between the bottom and the top isn't too big. Uh, it's hard to move from rags to riches uh, when the gaps between the rungs and the ladder get wider. Yeah, and we actually see that here at ANU. As many of you will be aware, we've changed the way we've started admitting students specifically to get out, make sure we get people of talent from across the nation. And one of the challenges we have is, is that uh, we are able to bring people from around Australia, but if they are, uh, the social inequity that they come from is too far away, then no matter how talented they are, they still aren't going to make it here. So we have to have different ways to get them in. And so you really do see it. We can go down into the sort of from a socioeconomic basis down into the sort of the 20, 25th percentile. But once you go down below that, it's really challenging. And so my, my job is to figure out how to get around that. And probably means having partners and staging things over time. So it, you really do see it on the ground uh, when you're doing things here. Sometimes you don't see it so easily here in Canberra because there's not a single postcode in Canberra that has lower than average socioeconomic, uh, 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 you know, um, uh, the, the, the way, the, the SOE numbers that we do. So interesting to do that. And Brian, if I can just spark off that, uh, this is also what you see when you look at startups. Uh, so a disproportionate number of Australian startups are built by uh, young white men from affluent backgrounds. Uh, we don't want to discourage them from starting up businesses, but it does immediately bring to mind that there is a talented pool of entrepreneurs that we're not tapping. 22% uh, of startups uh, st started by women, but surely the 51% of the population that are women uh, have 51% of the entrepreneurial facilities. Uh, too often, startups can only be funded by the bank of mum and dad, uh, which means that if you've got a, a problem in venture capital, uh, you don't get to get those startups. Uh, and uh, there's been some good writing done in the United States showing that startups are 10 times as likely to come from the top families in the top 1% as from families in the bottom half of the distribution, uh, suggesting, as they put it, that there are a whole lot of lost Albert Einsteins and lost Marie Curies out there in society, uh, people whose talents would help make the country more innovative and more equal. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit because I think it's a really important part about how you drive uh, innovation and, and who, who really shares it. And, you know, in the end, innovation reflects the people who invent it, I'm afraid. And so that's going to be an interesting issue when we get into the second half of our uh, discussion. So let's talk about the Terminator scenario. This is the one that gets most of the press uh, in terms of the, the front pages. Uh, are we all going to be disintermediated by machines, uh, this audience? Are we going to find ourselves irrelevant, where something gets in between us, makes us just surplus to requirements? Or do you think it's going to be a little more complicated than that? So the gap now, if you look at the best Go-playing computers, that is, people who play the, the Chinese game Go, computers that play the Chinese game Go, the gap between the best computer and the best human is about the gap between the best human and an amateur player. Meaning that if the be world's best poker, chess and Go playing computers were self-aware, they would probably look at humans' intellectual prowess a bit the way we look at the intellectual prowess of our cats and dogs. 
this is only a, a narrow domain, but already computers are able to start with first principles. You give them the rules, they go out and play, the, play a bunch of games against themselves, and they do things that humans have, the human players have never thought about doing. So the thought experiment with the singularity, which is a sort of common theme of science fiction, is what happens at the moment when a general purpose artificial intelligence suddenly is able to surpass humans. Uh, we move in human generations, which means to produce a, another set of humans takes on average 30 years or so, uh, but machine generations could be seconds, and so the pace at which the computers would then uh, accelerate away from humans would be remarkable. Uh, we talk about the singularity experiment in the book, uh, thought experiment in the book, not so much because Joshua and I lie awake at night worrying about the singularity, but because it reminds you of how people who did routine work uh, feel about technological advances. Uh, people who were doing work such as uh, bookkeepers or data entry cares, to name two of the fastest shrinking occupations. Uh, those occupations are under threat and we need to think carefully about how to uh, re retrain people in those occupations. Uh, that could happen to many other occupations and Joshua and I uh, don't, don't pretend to have a perfect crystal ball on this. We think there is fundamental uncertainty as to which jobs will go uh, and which jobs will grow, uh, but what we need is a set of institutions tailored to that inherent uncertainty. So at this time, we always go back and talk about the Luddites, uh, which I hadn't appreciated was a made-up name of something that people adopted. Ned Ludd. Yeah, Nick Ludd, who did not actually exist but became a big following. Uh, uh, people worried about machines replacing them. Uh, and in your book, you make, and I want to tease this out because uh, I'm not sure if I'm completely convinced, that all that where were many, many more jobs made by the production of these these first machines than the Luddites who lost their job. Uh, but I guess the question is, did the actual Luddites, uh, did they get left behind or did they transition into some new nirvana not yet realized by them at the time when they were worried? Or did they literally get left behind in the transition and new, young, sparkly things with the new education take their place and so you have a lost group of people? So it's exactly the right question to be asking, Brian, and thankfully there are a number of impressive economic historians in the room who may be able to deal with the, uh, the gaps in survey data for the 1810s uh, to, uh, to uncover what is, I think, a really important question because uh, if other people are getting jobs but you're losing yours, that doesn't make you any more positive about the transition. Uh, and... And from a political economy standpoint, uh, we have very good evidence that parts of the United States most exposed to uh, the entry of China to the WTO at the beginning of the millennium uh, disproportionately saw job losses, disproportionately then voted for populist candidates as a result. Uh, so we need to better track the, uh, the, those who are impacted by industrial restructuring. I think there's been some of this done by the government in the context of car plant closures. Uh, but it's, it's exactly the right question to be asking. Uh, the, uh, there's, there's people in the United States who describe trade adjustment assistance as being like funeral insurance. Uh, they say they would rather have a job than the, uh, the pay packet. Uh, Joshua and I argue that we need uh, lifelong learning precisely because the more flexible you are, the more generalist skills you are, the more you're going to be able to adapt to a shock. Uh, we note that many people uh, are in love with the German apprenticeship system. 
Uh, but our read of the evidence on the German apprenticeship system is that while it's very good for averting youth unemployment, it can narrow cast people into occupations which leaves them vulnerable to technological change. Uh, we prefer the Swiss system, which is more general training, uh, and where wages of apprentices tend to be higher by the time people are in their 50s and 60s. Yeah, so that whole question of how you give people the options of, of actually having a job for life. Uh, you know, I'm, as running a university, you're trying to think about, okay, so what do I do to make sure that uh, people of Canberra or, or even broader get the opportunity to, um, to, to get these new skills? My experience is it's very, it's much easier to have a conversation with someone who still has a job because they usually then have the resources and money and uh, the ability to uh, help pay for courses, which right now have zero support in the Australian system. If you want to come here and do a, a master's or an executive or whatever, you're doing it on your own dollar, and there is not any subsidy whatsoever. Uh, Singapore, which I do various uh, advising for, has come out really aggressively and provided essentially 80% support um, for these types of works going forward. So, I mean, is Singapore too far out there or do we have an issue that is going to rear its ugly head here in Australia by not having this part of the, uh, the ecosystem covered right now? I think there's an immensely important role for universities in being the place that uh, coordinates a lot more life, lifelong learning. It doesn't mean people would actually need to come onto campus, but it does mean that you can help people put together the bits that they need to continue retraining. Uh, it's really striking to me that we've seen the unbundling of music. Uh, Spotify and iTunes allow people to buy music a song at a time. They don't have to get the whole album. Uh, but in education, typically you have to buy the whole album. Uh, thinking about ways of, uh, of allowing uh, MOOCs to be integrated within uh, traditional degrees uh, is important because it brings down the cost of education, uh, but we can also raise the benefits of MOOCs by having appropriate accredi accreditation systems. I'm struck, I uh, spent a lot of time talking with mechanics over the last couple of years uh, as a result of a particular policy we took to the last election, which we lost. Uh, and, uh, and that meant that I got a lot of time talking with them about how they do retraining. Uh, it's striking the combination of formal courses, YouTube videos, uh, informal training that mechanics are doing to stay up to speed with very rapid technological development uh, by automobiles. Yeah, and those mechanics are good because they're pretty focused on what they need to do. They're in, in, in now. I guess the problem is what happens when your whole area just gets wiped out. Uh, and, and I think that's a more of a wicked problem of people trying to say, I need to do something from scratch. One of the things that worries me is that we often talk about training, uh, but to be trained in increasingly complicated areas, you need to have some foundational education skills. Uh, and most of the time that is done, you know, straight when you're young until you're 20-something uh, or, or, or less. Uh, do you, any sense of, of whether or not we need to be worried about making sure people to get that foundational education? Or do you think we're going to be able to add it on later on? Because I'm not convinced that people can really do those really deep foundational education as they get older, mainly just because of other demands of life on their time that make it very difficult to focus. Some people can, 
I'm not saying it's a, it's a problem of being old. I'm saying it's, it's one of just time, being able to sit down and say, I'm going to spend 10,000 hours learning a bunch of skills that are gonna use, I'm going to use for life. I totally agree. I think uh, those broad skills are really important to higher education. And one of the risks of uh, those who say that universities should be focused only on the needs of today's employers uh, is that tomorrow's employers may be demanding something entirely different. Uh, they may be hiring for jobs that don't even exist today. Um, skills like learning to program in R, understanding matrix algebra, thinking carefully about Heidegger, uh, these are things which you are much more likely to do when you're at a university uh, than when you've got all the, the pressures of, of work and family uh, later on. Uh, so having those foundational courses uh, for me is, is pretty vital uh, and it's, uh, it's one of the, uh, the reasons that I'm optimistic about the role of uh, universities uh, for a long time yet. All right, so let's move on to one of the chapter titles, which is, Does Innovation Require Inequality? That is, does innovation just give you inequality? Uh, and you sort of argue it does at some level, but you're talking also at the same time we need to mitigate that. So maybe talk us through some of the issues there. A lot of people argue that uh, in inequality is just the price of progress. Uh, if you want to have iPads and iPhones, then you have to reward the creators of those things by turning them into billionaires. But one way to see that the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow need not, need not be the only factor is to note that uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan have announced that they are going to give away some 99% of their fortune before they die. Uh, suggesting that the prize that they uh, they that uh, Mark received for the innovation of Facebook uh, was not as large as it needed to be. Uh, we think that much more important than the size of the pot of gold uh, are impediments to people uh, innovating. Uh, there's a notion of permissionless innovation, which we're drawn to. Uh, the idea that we ought to be creating things like regulatory sandboxes to allow innovators to experiment with their fresh ideas. The stuff we talked about before, Brian, about creating opportunities for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds whose mum and dad have never started a business to link up with a mentor who's able to assist them. Uh, there's an equity advantage to that, but there's also a huge efficiency argument. And of course, intellectual property laws, which don't uh, provide such a long monopoly period that they stymie follow-on innovation. Uh, it worries me when uh, Google says that Australia's intellectual property laws would have prevented them setting up the company in Australia, uh, that they couldn't have, uh, you, they didn't have the kind of fair use doctrine that would have allowed them to do their little snippets on the website. Uh, that's a real problem if that's the case, if our intellectual property laws are, are stifling rather than encouraging innovation. So uh, I guess the question then, though, is, okay, Facebook came into existence. It became, a, however, half a trillion dollar company. How do you deal with that? I mean, how does, how does that not an inevitable uh, realization of technology, which seems to have at its core scale matters? If you've got all the data, if you've got all the answers. Uh, having the platform of Facebook, the reason it works is everyone's on it. So how on earth do you stop uh, that ac accumulation of wealth amongst just a very small number of individuals? 
competition law is a key part of this. Uh, if you've got bad competition laws, you end up with monopolies which become fat and lazy. Uh, they don't do enough innovation because they don't need to. Uh, they instead become uh, more like bureaucracies trying to build moats around themselves, uh, trying to protect their market position, not make any risky plays because they like the status quo. Uh, so you, I think that's one of the reasons, that the lack of market competition in Australia, uh, why we've got relatively little innovation. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that a country which, uh, uh, in, in which most sectors are dominated by just a few firms is also a country where only 8% of firms say they're working on an innovation which is new to the world. Uh, if we get uh, fewer monopolies, uh, we can get more scrappy startups, uh, more ideas, and, and make Australia more of a country uh, which is producing fresh ideas for the world rather than largely, as at the moment, consuming the world's innovations. But you don't think we're still going to get these big, uh, big platform technologies where you can have all the competition you, law you want, but when you have... You know, the reason Facebook's wor Facebook works is because it's Facebook and I want to talk to there and I don't want to have 27 different platforms because that's not very efficient. So how do, you, how do you avoid that, I mean, without just crazy regulation? Well, one way is to have interoperability of, platform, of social media platforms. Uh, this was an issue that came up when uh, telephone uh, networks were deregulated in the United States. There was initially a reluctance to, among those telco car carriers, particularly the biggest ones, to allow calls coming in from outside the network. Uh, and they were forced to do that by regulation, and now anyone on any telephone network can call anyone on any other telephone network. So we pick up an idea in the book, which has been proposed by other economists, uh, that there should be interoperability of, of social media platforms. So if you want to set up a competitor, say, No Russia Book, uh, then you're able to uh, inter integrate with Facebook. Obviously, there's some privacy concerns and data sharing concerns you need to work, with, work through with that. Uh, but many of the sorts of issues that arise in social network interoperability uh, are akin to issues that arose with te uh, telephone number uh, interoperability. So it's not beyond our wit to, uh, to uh, challenge some of those big monopoly positions. Do we need to worry about the fact that monopolies are able to work quite effectively in the global system where digital rights and taxation and stuff's all very murky and you just, you know, end up... Uh, you know, I, I'm always entertained to find out about how hot the uh, the uh, economy is in Ireland, but it seems to, you know, it, it's ahead of almost everywhere if you measure it on pure numbers. But that's because it has a very, it has the lowest tax regime for many firms. So it's creating a certain dynamic which seems to be draining Company, uh, countries like Australia of a lot of its taxation, which allows us to fix some of the, the issues around uh, income inequality. Uh, what is going on there? You don't talk too much about it in this book, but it strikes me as something that's maybe missing from the conversation there. Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, Two-fifths of multinational profits are now channeled through tax havens uh, and they're increase increasingly sapping revenue from advanced countries. Uh, once upon a time when production was wheat and steel, it was pretty hard to pretend that your locus of creation was in, a, in another country. 
But when you're producing bits and bytes, uh, it's very straightforward to say, well, I'm actually not producing them in the country with the reasonable tax rate. I'm producing them in the country with the unreasonably low tax rate. Uh, there's movement around the OECD and the G20 to tackle this, uh, but there's also potential for unilateral action. Uh, France and Britain have moved to the digital services levy where they've essentially said they're going to increase their value-added tax for digital firms uh, until the rest of the advanced world moves to tax those uh, digital companies at a reasonable rate. Uh, it's clearly not first best economics, but it's a reaction to the growth of uh, tax havens and zero tax jur jurisdictions, uh, which are sapping so much of the revenue we need for social services. So on a, I guess, a, a, a grand economic uh, point of view, I mean, one of the features of the last 40 years is that if you look where profit share is gone, uh, the return to labor is just falling and the return to people with money and capital keeps rising. So is that just simply what we're talking about or is there something else going on there? And do you think just getting rid of monopolies is, is gonna be sufficient uh, to start giving labor a fairer share of the, of the pot going forward? Uh, one of the things that you notice at times of big technological disruptions is that it can take a while for Labor to get a reasonable share of the gains. Uh, there's uh, a development that people noted after the Industrial Revolution where for about 50 years uh, productivity grew, GDP went up and wages essentially flatlined. Uh, it's called the Engels pause. Uh, and then at a certain stage, uh, industrial organisation happened. Uh, you saw a lot more collective action, the growth of the first uh, unions, uh, and the labour share began to move back up. Uh, I think we're seeing something similar in uh, the current economy uh, in which organised labour is, is playing a much weaker role than it did a generation ago. In the early 1980s, half the Australian workforce was in a union. Now it's one in eight who are in a union. Uh, and the growth of uh, gig economy platforms is making it increasingly challenging for uh, workers to organise. But that'll be a, but that'll be a part of, uh, of pushing up the labour share, uh, as well, of course, as increasing human capital. You know, you get uh, uh, core focus on teacher quality, uh, much, much stronger focus on the quality of vocational education uh, and an expansion of, uh, of universities. I mean, you'd be crazy to cap university places at a time like this. Uh, and then you can see uh, more, uh, more of the labour share, uh, go, more of the uh, output share going to labour. All right, so one of your central theses of the book is that, uh, you know, the in we, we want to have incentives to get people to go out and disrupt the current state of affairs for the better. So that is to create the innovative, uh, uh, the innovative new companies. Uh, you've already indicated there's some inequity, and we'll come back a little bit more on that about uh, who actually can take the risk uh, to do those uh, new innovations. Uh, but how do we ultimately, how should we be sharing the spoils? I mean, do we just raise taxation up to 95% like the Beatles dealt with, or do we do something else? 
Uh, well, uh, the uh, United States, I think, is uh, one of the highest ever ta top tax rates, uh, 94% at the end of World War II. And Joshua and I think at that stage there's, you can make a reasonable case that that was impeding innovation. Uh, but we don't see a case for where top tax rates are now in countries like Australia and the United States uh, for further cutting those uh, tax rates. Uh, in our view, these are, uh, these are appropriate levels of taxation uh, in order to encourage innovation. Uh, instead, uh, we'd like to see ecosystems that uh, encourage uh, entrepreneurs to be in, uh, be in touch with mentors. Uh, Joshua at the University of Toronto runs a thing called the Creative Destruction Lab, uh, which brings together every few months startup uh, entrepreneurs uh, and experienced mentors. Uh, they're not doing that in order to provide technical assistance, but to provide what the Creative Destruction Lab describes as a missing market for judgment. Uh, so those experienced uh, mentors are talking with the new st uh, potential startups uh, about how to gauge their market, uh, how to position their product, uh, how to build an effective team and a suitable board around them. Uh, that's the, the judgment is the missing piece of the puzzle uh, and the encouragement of people who would otherwise miss out uh, on getting uh, in contact with great mentors is, uh, is one of the key pieces to add to, uh, to the equity as well as the efficiency. So, yes, I was reading about the Creative Destruction Labs. We had sort of things like that, but not quite. So do we need something like that here in Canberra? I think it'd be great. Uh, and, you know, there's already uh, Canberra Business Innovation Network. I had an experience recently where after uh, an especially dispiriting week of, uh, of Parliament uh, on the Thursday, I, the House rises at five o'clock and I dashed down to a pitch session at the uh, Innovation Network. And, and no, never in my life have I moved between two more different worlds. Uh, I'd been sitting in question time, sort of staggering through this onslaught of, of cliches from uh, the government du jour, and instead at the Innovation Network you had these fresh ideas, bright young things, talking about interesting technology, presenting data, trying to uh, woo the startup founders. So seeing more of that would be great, but we don't want innovation to be uh, an elite sport. We want to democratise it uh, by ensuring that a startup experience uh, is is something that many more people get. Not just those who are studying engineering, but but people who are studying physiotherapy, uh, who have a chance to think, well, there might be a process that I can come up with which is different with what everyone else has done before, uh, which could revolutionise my field. Do we need to worry about, I mean, because the the risk aversion is going to be tied to your, your resources uh, and especially your ability to go in and, uh, you know, sort of have an insurance for a rainy day. So in the United States, uh, the bankruptcy laws are very generous relative to Australia. Do we need to worry about stuff like that if you really want to democratise? So the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor asks people, are you deterred by fear of failure from starting a business? And 41% of Australians say yes, which is higher than the answer that you get in Britain and the United States, where it's only about a third who say they're deterred by fear of failure from starting a business. So there's clearly a, a portion of that that's cultural and, and you'd like to create an environment uh, in which uh, businesses recognise the talents of somebody who has tried and failed. 
Partly that will also come from uh, reducing the power of monopolies. Uh, again, if you run a big monopoly, uh, which is uh, protecting a market position that it has built up over decades, you're not looking for somebody who has failed once uh, and can try something brand new. Uh, you're looking for a very safe pair of hands who will make sure that this moat that you've built up is dug a little deeper uh, and you're able to keep any potential competitors at bay. Uh, so more competition in the market uh, will also change the labour market for potential entrepreneurs and importantly for failed entrepreneurs uh, who we would like to see more of. So in terms of democratization, as you said, entrepreneurialism has a real uh, gendered aspect to it. Uh, it's certainly in our society and in the United States. One of the things that I learned from one of your, uh, well, economics colleagues, Michael Spence, who was doing some work for Alibaba and analyzing their platform, uh, where they essentially can give micro loans on the on the on the fly, and people are able to build up their, uh, essentially their businesses from little digital pieces from essentially nothing. So let's imagine you have the idea to, I have a new type of dress I wanna create. Well, you could say I'm gonna buy, I'm gonna get a loan, I'm gonna buy the fabric, these people are gonna manufacture it, uh, these people do my website, these people will uh, uh, take the money in transaction. You can actually build up a business digitally in this platform, which is essentially a monopoly, that platform is. But an emergent property is that 51% of the economic activity on that platform is female. It's the only place where you got entrepreneurialism that is gender equal, and China is hardly a gender equal society. So are there some lessons there that we need to really think detailed about how society works here and maybe use a giant monopolistic platform to help level the playing field? I'm delighted that this is an instance of a monopoly which is uh, pushing egalitarianism. I don't think that's the, uh, the norm. Uh, but certainly I'd love to see more careful analysis of what underpins it. Uh, my uh, co-author and former colleague Alison Booth is here, who's done some enormously important work around looking at risk in gender uh, and the, the, role, the role of risk attitudes in driving gender pay differences. Um, there's also been really important work done by Deborah Cobb-Clark on the impact of sexual harassment on the gender pay gap, uh, suggesting that one of the big impediments to uh, women having the same career uh, paths as men uh, is that sexual, sexual harassment causes women to drop out of the high-pressure, high-paying jobs. Um, that's not only deeply inequitable, it's also massively inefficient because society misses out on these uh, vital skills. Uh, so uh, I was asked another uh, another conversation, what can individuals do? Uh, speaking out against sexual harassment is probably one of the best things you can do if you want Australia to grow faster and be fairer. So I was uh, asked, and this will finish up and go into questions, I was asked uh, last week at a meeting by the Prime Minister of why Australian universities so suck at innovation and why we aren't uh, using our research for the benefit of the nation. And uh, I was, uh, well, uh, part of the question is true, but let's ask, uh, what's the answer to that question? What do universities need to be doing? What does industry and Australian government need to be doing to uh, better take our world-class research that we do and create businesses that Australians uh, are going to give jobs to Australians and wealth uh, like we're used to. 
Yes, it's certainly true that uh, collaboration between businesses and research institutions in Australia is, is almost the lowest in the OECD. Um, you see it anecdotally. You walk the streets around Stanford and MIT and you run across a whole lot of startup businesses in tech and biotech. Uh, you walk the streets around a, a major G08 university in Australia and you run across a bunch of nice restaurants and cafes. Uh, and what that, that I, I think is uh, as much on the business end as it is on the university end. Uh, the appetite for engaging with business uh, is less here uh, than, uh, than, than it is in other places. Uh, but there's potentially also ways of building those connections between university students who want to have a startup experience and startup firms who are looking for talent. Uh, so providing uh, more ability for students not just to uh, work in a pub or a cafe while they're uh, getting them through, through their studies, uh, but to have their part-time job being one that augments their university career, uh, I think would be fabulous. Uh, I worry too much that we have university students doing jobs that are paying a salary but aren't adding to their human capital, and, and that strikes me as a, as a real missed opportunity. Uh, yeah, and I agree. And so one of the things we're really trying to focus on with our students, both undergraduate and postgraduate, is to try to integrate uh, interesting jobs, whether it be in the university, it turns out. We have lots of interesting things I'm not doing in the university, uh, partially because I just don't have the people, and being able to create that as part of uh, their experience, but then also working with industry. Because I think, from my perspective, the big missing part is when I go and talk to most Australian industry, they literally don't know what they could or should be doing with us because there are essentially no PhDs within their midst. The idea of doing research that we do uh, isn't really on their radar. And so we need to be very open to share our uh, students who are particularly mobile, uh, be open to bring in people from industry to come and work. So really try to get that porosity and culture where people know each other uh, can have chats about what industry needs. So I think that's uh, certainly one of our strategies, but I would say not completely realized. Our startups that we create out of this university, they're great. And we do that all the time with them. We just don't have enough of those. And so it would be nice to work with the ASX 200, which uh, I would say at this point are fairly impenetrable for us. The likes of Microsoft, Amazon, Google, they're actually easier for us right now because they turn out have more of our PhDs than the Australian firms do. As I discovered when I was in San Francisco, and my God, Silicon Valley is full of ANU people. Uh, it's <laughs> outrageous. Uh, and they're making more than all of us. Uh, so that's probably why. All right, so I think we'll, uh, we'll finish up our conversation. So it's now time to open up the conversation to the audience. Uh, uh, please, uh, as uh, Colin said, make your questions uh, a question, uh, and hopefully relatively uh, uh, brief so that we can get through a number of them. Uh, and Colin, uh, you've got someone up there to your right. OK, you'll be number two. Thank you for a rich conversation, um, Andrew. And I'm sorry I haven't read your book yet, but my question goes to climate change. And using one of your words, is there any common ground between um, the thesis of your book and the thesis of Ross Garno's book in terms of uh, addressing climate change? Is there any interoperability between the two? 
Absolutely. Uh, so Superpower talks about the optimistic strategy for climate change, the notion that climate change isn't uh, so much a threat as being an opportunity, uh, that we, ca we have rich resources in uh, uh, sun and wind and ought to be able to create many more jobs from climate change than we should be worried about going. Uh, and also, I think there's a strong egalitarian aspect to this. Uh, we're about to go into an extraordinarily hot summer uh, who's going to suffer most through that? It'll be the people that can't afford an air conditioner. Uh, they're going to be the, the older, older people living in unair-conditioned houses are going to be at most risk of uh, health problems. Uh, poorer people are less likely to be able to afford insurance. Uh, so effectively tackling climate change will not only uh, boost growth, it will also boost fairness as well. And you know, as, as a university looking at this, uh, it is a place where we're putting a lot of effort because I just think the upside for the Australian economy is remarkable. You know, we have a program to help create a 15 gigawatt uh, fully renewable power plant up in uh, the Kimberley. There's another one that uh, uh, Michael Cannon Brooks is talking about in the Northern Territory. If you go through and say, which country has the greatest capacity to create large-scale, cheap, renewable energy, it's Australia. So we're looking at creation of hydrogen so you can move it around. Uh, of course, we're doing battery technology and all those things, green steel. These are all technologies we're looking at. And we get them right. You know, Just think of um, uh, aluminum smelting. That's, that's an intensely electric process. And if you get it so you can turn it off and on in the course of the day, I can buy a contract for electricity right now as the university for 2.8 cents Australian per kilowatt hour. And I got to take the electrons when they arrive. But imagine I'm making aluminum, and I can do it when the sun's shining. That, that is the cost basis there is even cheaper than hydro. It is so cheap. So huge opportunity. But we need to have a long-term vision for the nation that does not, unfortunately, yet exist. Uh, and Australia will once again be the lucky country. And the only thing I fear is it will be so lucky in this space that we'll put all our eggs into this basket and not continue to innovate uh, and diversify our economy a bit. All right. Thank you. Um, just a question around the model of how we fund R&D um, in general. So when we look at our history, we've been so successful out of university labs, out of CSIRO, ANSTO, DSTG, you know, where we had nerds in basements who were paid to sit there and come up with great things that have given us really great innovation. But now we see this move from a government-funded model, and we've seen all the defunding of the universities and these bodies, to a market model. And yet, when we look at the companies, you know, in 10 years, Australia's gone from two in the top 1,000 R&D funders to four. China's gone from two to 25, in addition to all the funding it's putting into its universities and other institutions. Is there a risk that the market is encouraging buying startups rather than fostering innovation in R&D? Is our model potentially wrong? Uh, Jethman, I think it's a great question and uh, it certainly goes to the uh, challenge of an economy which has been too dominated by, by small numbers of firms uh, and in which we've tended to do follow-on innovation rather than new-to-the-world innovation. Uh, Mariana Matsukatu makes the point that a whole lot of innovation uh, doesn't follow the traditional notion of the uh, lone brilliant person in the garage, uh, but is in fact government institutions coming up with, uh, with new technologies. And she uses the example of the, the smartphone where she said, well, the internet, 
GPS, touchscreen technology, all of those are coming out of government-funded programs. Uh, one study of NIH uh, approved drugs, uh, sorry, uh, uh, FDA approved drugs in the US looked to see what share of the 200 drugs in the sample had received NIH funding, and the answer was all of them. Uh, so very, very often there is a, a core government role for, uh, for innovation there. Uh, part of that is about celebrating organisations like universities and the CSIRO. Uh, part of it, though, is, is also ensuring that there's uh, a better dovetailing of those institutions with the private sector, which is the, the work that Brian's doing there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything Andrew said. I'll just say that, you know, you, you do need to do foundational work where you're just not really sure what's going on. I do think there's an opportunity of having, as uh, uh, Mariana Matsukata talks about, moonshots, but they got to be appropriate for us, and they got to be real moonshots, not little half-baked ones, you know? Why not be a country that decides to be fully renewable and, and have a trillion-dollar export industry by 2040? I actually think that's doable, uh, and that's a moon—that's a real moonshot, and it it helps solve a lot of problems and helps make Australia a rich country in the same time. So I think we need to be bold, and right now we're not in that bit. Question up here? Yeah. yeah um, <clears throat> you mentioned that the uh, membership of unions has dropped away over the last. Well, decades. Um, I'm just wondering whether unions have been innovative in the way they're approaching what they do because, as I understand it, a lot of former unionists now are entrepreneurs. They run their own little business in plumbing or whatever and I know a few of them who've gone broke and maybe they could have done with some help and I just wonder whether unions could or are, whether they are being innovative. My Labor economics professor at Harvard, Richard Freeman, described union organisation as being a race between workers to organise plants and employers to set up new plants. Uh, and he said that explains why the public sector and manufacturing enterprises tend to be more highly unionised and why sectors with a lot of small firms tend to be less unionised. Uh, we've seen a, a shift towards a uh, much more services-driven economy uh, and that's in, that, that accounts for a significant share of the decline in unions. Uh, yes, there, there's more work to be done on innovation, but there's also uh, a lot of thoughtful people within unions uh, uh, pondering the problem of how to make this work. Uh, whether you're able to have different models for union dues, whether there's different services that unions can provide. Uh, what does it mean to be the union for Uber workers, for example? Uh, how, what, uh, what, what can you offer an, an Uber worker uh, as their industrial representative? Uh, but I, I don't see another social institution that has such a powerful impact on inequality as unions, and I don't see alternatives to unions as providing that core role that unions have provided uh, for the course of the uh, 20th century. Hi, yeah, you, you mentioned regulation before and the issues in the Australian market in particular. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are in relation to the scope for innovation in relation to regulation itself. Uh, governments are solely responsible for regulation and markets are lending themselves to um, uh, well, they're, they're finding ways to overcome that regulation and, um, and, and making up their own rules along the way. So there have been arguments that I've 
um, that I've come across in which we talk about the, the prospect of crowdsourced innovation, for want of a better way to describe it, um, where you pull together um, participants in, in an environment and they come up with rules for how that, that um, industry or segment should run uh, with input from participants. So I'm just wondering whether you have any thoughts on innovation in regulation in general. I mentioned before permissionless innovation uh, and notion that uh, goes back to the US uh, Admiral Grace Hopper who famously said that it's easier to ask forgiveness than seek permission. Uh, it is important that when we're dealing with startups who are working on areas that, that don't carry significant existential risk, uh, that we are open to them uh, trying, trying new things in interesting fields. For example, if you want to democratise access to finance, uh, there is a good argument to be said that you want uh, to encourage point-of-sale-based finance uh, where firms are able to use big data rather than the value of your assets to judge uh, whether or not to extend a loan to you. Uh, I'm told that uh, uh, some of the sharing economy platforms are confident that they can predict a year's revenue based on a month's behaviour, uh, looking at precisely how you behave over the course of that month. Uh, that's got huge benefits in terms of egalitarianism, uh, but current regulations make it difficult. Uh, so yes, being being open to more regulatory innovation, I think would be uh, would be important. Uh, Kate Lundy, the former senator for the ACT, was one of the first to look at uh, the kind of model you talk about and democratising the uh, drafting of regulation. Uh, and maybe that's uh, their exercises that could be engaged in when you think about some of the deliberative democracy models we're looking at. Why not apply that to regulation too? But there's certainly going to be some challenges, as we've seen in the specific area you've talked about. Apple has come out with a credit card that does exactly what you said and it realized completely different uh, standards for men and women that emerged out of it because it, well, I guess obviously they didn't think about it since one of their engineers tweeted that he and his wife had identical credit records and he got it and she didn't and sort of spurned a whole question in it. Yeah. So it, it is interesting about how it, it's, it's, it's a non-trivial thing to go in. Take Can the last question. Wealth tax, that's almost the obvious implication, the, the only implication from what, what you're talking about uh, in terms of inequality. That's where the inequality is. That's where it gets passed on to children, not after the parents die. You have a death tax, it's not going to make any difference. It's for people whose incomes rise above, I don't know, or people whose wealth rises above, say, $5 million, an annual tax on that would be a way of dampening that uh, transmitted inequality. Am I right or can't you say? Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Peter, it is a, a great question to end on. Uh, uh, we're just coming up to the uh, six-month anniversary of Labor losing an election based in part on a scare campaign suggesting we would have a death tax, uh, a policy which we had not favoured since 1979. Um, but I would say that looking at the United States context, it's uh, that Bill Gates is wrong when he says of Elizabeth Warren's proposal that it would dampen the, the innovative potential. Uh, I think that's, uh, that, that critique fundamentally misunderstands the innovative process uh, and misunderstands what was going on uh, in Gates' own founding of Microsoft. Uh, far more important than the tax rates of the time, which when Microsoft were was founded uh, sig were significantly higher than they are today, 
uh, was the fact that Bill Gates had access to programming through his Seattle High School, uh, that he had access to networks and mentors, uh, that he was in an ecosystem that encouraged, encouraged innovation. Uh, so I, I don't think uh, whatever, whatever arguments you want to make about Elizabeth Warren's tax proposals, I don't think it is a strong critique of those proposals uh, to say that they will hamper, hamper innovation. All right, uh, I could uh, start getting in there, but we're out of time, and uh, I'm fortunately not a member of either political party, so uh, I don't have to worry about uh, ex or current journalists asking hard questions in public <laughs> fora. So uh, I'd like to uh, wind things up. Uh, we have the opportunity for uh, Andrew to sign more books, uh, so make sure he uh, gets uh, his uh, RSI up. Uh, Andrew, any final things you want to close on? Uh... Just to say thank you for all of, to all of you for uh, joining the conversation. Uh, this is uh, a great innovation that Colin, Colin Steele has put together. Um, incredibly grateful to Colin for doing it, uh, to Brian for doing us the honour of being here in your amazingly busy schedule, uh, and to all of you for uh, joining the conversation. Thank you very much.